Hello, and welcome to Lake Forest On Topic. I'm your host, Tim Finnegan. On this podcast, we try to give the residents of Lake Forest information and insight into the people and actions that shape this city. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo. Dr. Lombardo is one of the country's most influential experts on stress and the impact it has on peak performance, mental well-being, and living a full purpose-fueled life. Dr. E, as she's known by audiences around the world, is a sought-after keynote speaker, author, and coach. She helps people identify how critical moments of high stress, what she refers to as the red zone, are shaping their behaviors, decisions, health, and overall performance. Dr. E has helped teams at many Fortune 500 companies unleash performance profits and untapped potential by showing them how to make sure stress gets the best from them and not the best of them. Dr. Lombardo is also a well-known media expert with hundreds of TV and radio appearances on shows like Good Morning America, Dr. Oz, The Today Show, CNN, Fox Business News, and others. She also regularly contributes to the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Success, Fast Company, Huffington Post, Forbes, and other respected publications. She is the author of several books, Get Out of the Red Zone, Better Than Perfect, and A Happy You. That's quite a lot, Dr. Lombardo, but welcome to uh, Lake Forest On Topic. I am honored to be here. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to have you. Anyway, um, since this is a Lake Forest-based podcast, what first brought you to Lake Forest and, and how long have you been here? Ah, yes. So I have been here about 11 years. My husband took a job at Solo Cup. Remember Red Solo ah, Cup? Um, he, was, he was he uh, was head of sales and marketing, and his job was to help sell the company. And they gave us an option. We were living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is a lovely town. They gave us the option to move us to the Chicago area or have us stay put. And I didn't understand that that was actually a question because it seemed so obvious to me that, of course, I would want to move here. And um, Lake Forest is was where the headquarters of Solo Cup was. So we moved here, yeah. and we have been so happy. Well, that's great. Yeah. Our youngest was a, a kindergartner uh, when we moved okay. here, and she is now a senior in high school. So we've gone the whole oh. span. There. Yeah. So, all right, we got to start with this because I'm not sure how you feel about the term, but you are dubbed a celebrity psychologist. I'm sure when you were in graduate school working on your PhD, that probably wasn't the end goal uh, of what you were doing. <laughs> so what was not, your yeah. career path to get you to get you to this point? Yeah, it's been it's been very exciting, this career path. I thought when I got my degree that I was going to go into academia because that's kind of what all great psychologists did in my program. <laughs> and I was doing my postdoctoral training. I was working about probably 80, 85 hours a week. And then I decided that was too much. I started a private practice and saw three clients and made as much money at my postdoc and as I did with those three clients through the year. So I decided maybe this is a better place for me just in terms of stress. But, you know, it was my, it was my first week of, psycholo of, yeah, of psychology school. I was madly taking notes as the professor was speaking, and something dawned on me. And that was, why do I have to get a PhD to learn this? 
we all would benefit from understanding how our mind works and how to make it work for instead of against us. And so it really became my mission to teach people those skills, whether it's with individual clients with coaching, whether it's speaking on stages around the globe, whether it's in media, writing books. There's so much information out there and we really don't have to have an advanced degree to be able to apply it in our lives and to benefit from it. So you went from basically a private practice as a therapist to a, a business coach, an athlete yeah. coach, a media personality. When did, how did that take <laughs> off? I mean, obviously, you know, one day somebody said, you know, we need we need this lady to talk to us. I, this is going to be great. Yeah, I'm still trying to convince people they need me to talk to them. How no, are you kidding. discovered, I guess? Is that <laughs> well, you know what? So we we were living in Texas. We were living in Dallas. And my husband got a job in Pittsburgh. Um, and at that time, I had two private practices. I was a, kind of the conventional psychologist. I had the couch. People would come in and, and, and speak with me. And a lot of times they came for fear of abandonment. And then I had to close both of those practices. And I felt like I was abandoning my clients. Now, this was way before <laughs> Zoom. You know, and most of my, a lot of my clients yeah. now I've never actually met in person. Um, so I wow. decided then that instead of opening another practice, I was going to write a book. And so my first book was called A Happy You, Your Ultimate Prescription for Happiness. As I was writing that book, I learned a little statistic. And that is that the average book sells less than 250 copies in its first year. And I thought since I was going to have my husband and my mom buy several dozen copies, like I needed to get the message out. I needed people to know about this book. And so I decided I was going to start speaking and start doing TV. Now, one little caveat was I was scared to death to be on a stage of any sort. If there were more than three people in the audience, I didn't want to be on it. I had such a phobia. And so I really had to do some internal work for first and then did a lot of media training and speaking training. And now it's it's so much fun. I, I really enjoy being able to share the message, but it did take some, it took a lot of work for me to, to get to where I am. Yeah. So yeah. you do a, a lot of big companies um, and, and, you know, you reference them on your website and you mostly giving presentations to employee groups uh, about how they can manage stress and improve performance. And I guess, have you found uh, over the course of your career that corporate America is taking mental health issues much more seriously and that there's a real uh, bottom line benefit to, to dealing with them and helping the employees address that. Absolutely. I mean, we know the research out of Harvard shows that when people are happier or what I would call in the green zone in a, in a, in a better place emotionally, that they have a 31% increase in productivity and a 37% increase in sales. So if you just think about that for any size organization, any size business, a 31% increase in productivity, having people get more work done without having to pay them more, and a 37% increase in sales, that's really significant. And the beauty is the work that I do, not only do businesses do better, but individuals do better and families do better. I would say particularly since the pandemic, the discussion on mental health or mental well-being has become a lot more, uh, more people are interested in it. They are interested in it for themselves. And interestingly, every time I speak, I talk about how I have a, a practice here that works with young people. And I was talking to a Fortune 100 company, I won't say the name, but we were talking, I was talking to the um, heads of HR there. And I said, what's the number one source of stress for your employees? And they said the number one source of stress for our employees is the mental well-being of their children. They are bringing that to work, and that's impacting how well they are working. So people are more open to having conversations about mental well-being, and they are more, they're really asking for it more. So when, when you're dealing with these uh, uh, corporate 
jobs um, where you're trying to help them help their employees and you're in uh, conference rooms, you're broadcasting over a Zoom these days as opposed to always standing in front of them. It'll, that's a large group of people with all sorts of diverse issues and where they are in their life. What are some of the key things you try to get across that applies to everybody that's going to be listening? Yeah, so my newest book is called Get Out of the Red Zone, as you said, and this concept of the psychological red zone is when we experience high levels of distress. Now, distress in psychology is any emotion you don't want. So it could be anger, frustration, anxiety, worry, fear, guilt, shame, helplessness, hopelessness, worthlessness, sadness, all goes in that distress pile. And distress exists on a continuum from zero, no distress at all, as I say, you just got off the massage table, right? Life is great. To 10 out of 10, the most distressed you've ever been. And the psychological red zone happens when we're at a 7 out of 10 or higher. A 7 and 8 and 9 or a 10, that's the red zone. And in the red zone, we don't always think or act rationally. So a lot of times I'll give people the following pop quiz. Have you ever said or done something that you later regretted? You don't have to answer that, don't worry. Have you ever <laughs> procrastinated or avoided an important project? Most people have, right? Have you ever felt so overwhelmed that you couldn't sleep? Most people have. And if anyone answered yes to any of those questions, you were in that psychological red zone. So most people can, can identify that they've been in that red zone before. What it looks like is different for different people. Why it shows up is different for different people. But understanding what the red zone is, understanding how our brain actually functions differently when we're in the red zone versus out of the red zone gives people a better understanding of why they may act the way they do, why the people around them may act the way they do, and some steps that they can take to, to get out of that red zone so that they can operate more at their peak performance. So that it's, you know, you identified how we could all tell like, okay, we're, we're past the manageable stress to the, it's now causing me to behave in a way I probably wouldn't choose to given the opportunity. That, so how, so recognizing obviously be the first thing and some of them are obvious, like I, I can't do anything. I can't sleep. I can't focus because there's too many things floating around in my mind. What's the first thing you do to try to stop going from seven to eight or eight to nine, get back to six or lower. Yeah, and so really the first step is being aware, being aware of where you are in that scale. And oftentimes, you know, we've probably had the experience where we didn't even realize we were in the red zone until later. We didn't realize, oh, I was completely overreacting at what that person said or what they did. In the moment, a lot of times we aren't aware of that. And one of the things that's really helpful is for people to understand at a very basic level what's going on in your brain when you're in the red zone. So when we're in what I call the green zone, low levels of distress, we're using more of the frontal lobe. Now, we know the frontal lobe, of course, is that structure that differentiates us from other animals, right? It allows us to engage in executive functioning, problem-solving, perspective-taking. This is when we're in the green zone and, and things happen that we don't necessarily want. We think, okay, this is tough, but I can handle it. Resilience takes place in the green zone. Confidence. I'm yeah. not perfect, but I believe in myself. Because we're using the frontal lobe, we can see the good and the not-so-good. We can see the problem, and we can figure out the solution. What happens is as we go up on this distress scale, instead of seeing the positive and the not so positive, when we get into that red zone, we're focusing almost exclusively on the negatives. Biologically, what's going on is instead of that frontal lobe processing the information, our limbic system jumps in. Fight or flight jumps in. And so in a way, our subconscious feels like we are drowning when we're in that red zone. So for example, I work a lot with athletes and, and I will say to my athletes, if you, even the best basketball player, if you were literally drowning, 
how well could you make that free throw? Not very well. And that's what happens when we get into the red zone. Our, our brain is processing information in a different way, and so it's very hard to be the people who we want to be. And sometimes, a lot of times, just understanding that difference gives us a better understanding and allows us to, to take control of what's going on. Sure. So, I, I mean, a lot of what you, you referred to is, is the neurology of what's going on up there and different parts of your brain's reacting. And that seems almost involuntary. So, you know, I, I, how do you not act that way when you're feeling really stressed? Yeah. I mean, is, is, or the only answer is to get out of the situation. Exactly. Like, it, don't be drowning. Swim. It's very hard to rationalize yourself out of the red zone. It's very hard to say, okay, I should just calm down right now. In fact, if you're in the red zone and someone tells you to calm down. So I said calm down. Yeah, you want to hit Just them. chill, mom. Yeah, it doesn't work, right? We have a very different reaction. We kind of want to strangle yeah. them. So I have a process. It's a three-step process. It's called ACT. I will not say it's ACT because when I work with young people, I assure you ACTs do not yeah, get people out of the red stress. zone. <laughs> but ACT goes like this. Apply your awareness. Know where you are from zero to 10. How do you know? It's the emotions you don't want. Sometimes it's our bodies that will tell us, right? So some people get headaches or back pain, um, tight muscles, all of that. Those can be indicators. Our behaviors can be indicators. When I'm in the red zone, I get a little snippy. And so if I start getting a little short with someone, I'm, oh, wait a minute, where am I from zero to 10? So A, apply your awareness. C is change your state. So in, to respond to that, instead of rationalizing, what you wanna do is get yourself out of the red zone. Take steps that are healthy and helpful to reduce that distress. How can you do that? There are a lot of ways, but one great way to do it is to move your body. Do a minute of push-ups, sit-ups, squats, jumping jacks, jump on the bed, walk up a flight of stairs. Mm. What it does is it releases biochemicals in our body that get that number, that distress number down lower. Now, sometimes we can't stand up and do some jumping jacks, so another thing to do is breathing. Our breath can cause us to feel more anxious. It can also cause us to feel less anxious. I have a friend here in, uh, well, Lake Bluff, I guess. He's a master Navy SEAL literally used to jump out of airplanes, you know, behind enemy lines and, and all that kind of stuff. And I Stressful asked, things. Right, that's what I, and I said, how are you all not in the red zone? Because it literally is life or death. That's why the red zone's great. That's why our brain functions yeah. like that. And he said they use their breath. They regulate their breathing, allowing them to calm down so that that number, that distress number is lower. We don't have to be Navy SEALs to be able to use that. And the beauty of using mm -hmm. our breath is we can do that anywhere. We can do that if we're you know, in front of a crowd. We can do that if we're interacting with our children. Um, and so really taking those nice, deep, diaphragmatic breathing can change our state too. You, you mentioned uh, you're doing a lot of work with athletes uh, and improving mental performance and their ability to perform under stress or under pressure. How, how'd you start doing that? I used to be a physical therapist. So when I first got out of uh -oh. college, I went to physical therapy school and I was a practicing PT for a while. And I loved being a physical therapist. I just realized how much psychology was really in our physical rehabilitation. So when I went back to school and got my degree in psychology, the sports psychology aspect of it just made a lot of sense. So mm -hmm. what I do now is I work with athletes and at a professional level, of course, we really focus on, on the sport. When I work with um, younger athletes, we do focus on the sport. The beauty of what I teach and the skills that I teach is not only does every athlete get better performing their sport, but I always say the side effects are things like healthy self-confidence, doing better in school academically, because they're learning the skills of how to get out of the red zone, whether the red zone is 
pressure of, you know, in a competition or a test or a social situation where maybe some kids aren't making the best choices. They learn the skills that they're able to use. And for me, that's really exciting, particularly right now when our young people are, are struggling so severely sure. when it comes to, to mental well-being. So, you, like you said, you work athletes from, from the youth sports up through professional athletes. And, and the universal concepts you're trying to get across to them, whether they're trying to make a high school team or win an Olympic medal or try and win a pickleball game down at the corner <laughs> park. Um, what, what, what are some of the things that you really want, you know, that apply across all those levels from kind of beginning, learning how to deal with stress in sports to have to do it for a living to... I used to be really good and I would like to win at something again, you know, whatever <laughs> drives that stress. You know, one of the biggest um, concepts that really applies to every athlete and to any of us who aren't athletes too, is how do you overcome failure? How do you overcome a mistake? In theory, it's really easy. I made a mistake. I, my putt didn't go in. Not a big deal. Let me putt again. Theoretically, that makes sense when we're in that green zone. But when we get into the red zone, we start making these errors more significant. We start focusing on the error. We keep replaying that error over and over again, and so we're more likely to make more errors. Now, telling yourself, don't think about it, um, is lovely in, in theory, but it's the old notion of don't think about a pink elephant. Right? Don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant's trunk. Don't think of a pink elephant's ears. Don't think of a pink elephant's body. You can't help but think of a pink elephant. And so learning the skills of how to actually not think about something, how to refocus your energy and your attention. Um, I don't know when this is being aired, but the Super Bowl, great example. I mean, yeah. the mental game that was performed was, was really incredible this year. You could see how even though things weren't necessarily going the way that the athletes wanted to, they were able to stay focused. They were able to stay present of what is happening and, and move forward. Yeah. In youth sports, there's, you know, I grew up playing sports as most everybody does and did. The bigger role should sports be in a child's life? And if we change that so much that we've created what's supposed to be a joyful, youthful experience into pressure because we got travel soccer, gymnastics tournaments on the road or can't, I mean, Where's the right place for youth sports? Uh, from someone who's seen a lot and probably a lot of these kids that have had to react to that kind of a, a situation. Yeah, and I will say a lot of times parents will contact me. They want me to start working with their child athlete. The athlete comes in and will say something like, I used to love the sport and now I don't like it anymore. And that's because they're putting so much pressure on themselves or other people are putting so much pressure on them. So what's the right amount? It really varies. I mean, some kids, I have a gymnast who, you know, six hours a day they're at the gym and they love it. it, it they have friends there. They have great social support. They have that sense of purpose and that works for them. But it doesn't work for all children. So I would say really look at what how your children child is reacting what's working for them, what's not, and always making sure that in addition to sports, there's something else in their life. It doesn't mean it has to be another four hours a day kind of project, but other outlets for them to have. Yeah. So in staying with sports, you know, mental health issues have traditionally been kept quiet, right? You, you didn't admit to having depression or any other problems. And um, that was very much a, a stigma for an athlete to 
to particularly at the higher levels to do that. But, you know, recently, in the last couple of years, we've had extremely high profile athletes, uh, Simone Biles, Ricky Rubio, Michael Phelps, Naomi Osaka, all take time away from their sport kind of at their peak, you know, for mental health reasons. Um, what, what changed that all of a sudden you think people are, are more comfortable admitting to that? Because, I mean, literally, I want to go back to coaching 30 years ago and hearing, you know, you're, you're weak or, you know, you're not tough enough, that kind of attitude. That's what you you were kind of taught. And now it seems like it's okay. You know, if, if you got to deal with it, you got to deal with it. So what, when do you it's feel okay that, you that change that you notice it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, some of the stigma around mental health is changing, thankfully. I often say w when people say the term mental health, often what comes up is pathology, depression, anxiety, something's wrong. And yet when you say physical health, and I, I do this when I'm, I'm speaking to crowds, I often say what comes up when you think of physical health, and people often say things like exercise and diet and sleep and maybe meditation. Isn't it interesting that when we think of physical health, we're focused on wellness, and when we think of mental health, we think of pathology. If you have a body, you have physical health. If you have a mind, you have mental health. So um, yeah. realizing that you know the whole goal is to, for wellness. It's for physical wellness. It's for mental wellness. And people have been struggling for a, a long time. Mental health issues are rising right now for various reasons. We could talk about that. Um, but I think you know between the stigma not being as prevalent and more people are struggling, and there are just some really strong people out there. Like Michael Phelps is a really great example. What a great pioneer he has been for depression and for getting the help that you need. And, you know, it, it, there's a point, it seems, where, you know, whether it's the young person saying I have no joy in it to, you know, you see some of these professional athletes actually just get to the breaking point because they just can't take it. How much of that, you know, do you believe is self self-driven versus other people's expectations? I mean, how, how do you manage that? Or do they get so merged you can't tell the difference? Well, I was going to say other people's expectations only impact you if you internalize them yourself. So the beauty is, and I say this to all my athletes, it's really within them of how they interpret the amount of pressure that they're experiencing. Now, I don't say that to put the guilt and shame on them, but to empower them because there are – some parents out there who, you know, may be putting a lot of pressure or, or, or coaches out there who are putting too much pressure on, on their athletes. I can't change the parents or the, the coaches unless they come in and, and want to change, but I can help those athletes reinterpret what they are saying to themselves. Example, I have a client right now who is, um, was recruited to go to college to play their particular sport, and the coach has repeatedly said, you do not deserve to play in college every time this person makes a mistake. Now, at first, this client, of course, was internalizing that and thinking, you're right, I am no good, I'm worthless. I taught them the skills of how to hear what the coach is saying. What the coach is really saying is, I want you to do better, right? That, that, that's the motivation behind what the coach is saying. So if the, if the athlete can hear, I want you to do better and turn off some of that condescending um, judgment, and internalize how can I do better? What can I do now and in the future to, to perform better? That's not only going to help them play better in competitions, but it's also going to help them manage stress better. Uh, 
we, you know, you briefly mentioned there's a lot of things in life bringing stress around, and and there's been uh, a lot of discussion recently, congressional hearings even on the impact of social media on teens and even preteens uh, mental state. I won't say mental health, right? Their their ability to to, to things. Yeah. You know, what what are your thoughts around that, and 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 what can we and should we be doing about that? Both as parents and, and, you know, friends, as well as a society? Well, there is a Lake Forest task force for the mental well-being of our young children. I don't know if you were familiar with that, but one of the things that we are tackling right now is social media. I actually just sponsored the movie Like. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. It's about the impact of social media. I just sponsored it at the Gordon Center a couple weeks ago. What can we do? Well, I would say, first of all, it's not just it's not just adolescence. It's not just pre-adolescence. Um, it's it's even children younger and it's adults. So I think one of the com- I, I think it's about having conversations about social media. <laughs> when would we ever hand the keys of a car to a 16 year old and say, go for it? We would never do that, right? I, just, I have two daughters, and I, ta- I spent many hours teaching them how to drive, making sure they knew how to operate this piece of machinery. And yet, we're giving our kids phones, or we're saying, oh, you can't have a phone, but they get an iPad so they can do just as much. We aren't teaching them how to do this. And the reason we're not teaching them how to do this is because we as parents don't really know what to do because this is all new. So I think the first step is having a conversation, a non-judgmental, which isn't always easy, conversation about social media. When I work with clients, one of the things I always say is, what's good about social media? And what's not so good for you? How do you feel when you're on social media? For some people, being on social media actually elevates their mood. They like to see their friends. They like to see what's going on. They're looking up the new recipes. That's great. For other people, they're comparing themselves to others and feeling like they fall short. It's an individual thing. So Mm. figuring out, you know, what's it like for you? What's your relationship like with social media? The key when we're working with young people is to have this conversation in a way that's not judgmental that we aren't feeling judgmental and that they aren't perceiving it as judgmental. And our teens, their brains are actually primed to focus on being judged. There's an interesting study where they showed pictures of facial expressions to young people and parents, and the parents saw the same facial expressions as being caring, concerned, loving. The kids looking at the same pictures identified it as being judged, um, looking down upon, you know, huh. not being pleased. And so we have to be really... It's just a pre- predisposition to believe that everybody is, is looking at them in that sort it's of manner. the way that brain is developing. And so being really aware of how you are having this conversation with young people. Um, and that's why I always ask, what's good about it? Because they're so used to adults telling them that it's bad. What's good? There must be something good about it because you're on it. Let's look at that. Uh-huh. Interesting, Lake Bluff um, had a whole um, social media in the in the middle school, had, had someone... I can't remember her name. Um, come talk to to all the classes and then talk to the parents. Found a lot of really interesting information. Some of it's super scary. But one of the things that I found fascinating was they asked people, the, the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, do you wish social media never existed? Between 75 and 85% of kids said, I wish social media never existed. I wow. told I told one of my daughters that, and she looked at me and she's like, Well, obviously, mom. So it, it's you know, they feel compelled to be on social media because people are on it. This is how they're communicating. This is how they know what's going on. They don't necessarily want to be. So empathizing and then helping them problem solve what, what could work 
we don't have the specific answers right now, but we do know less time on social media, having healthy conversations, blocking content that isn't healthy or helpful are different ways that we can, mm -hmm. can help our young people and our parents. Well, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stress on adults too. I'm sure most of your, you know, clients probably still are adults, but, you know, I would say most people I know would, would say they spend a decent amount of time in the red zone, right? Whether it's, um, you know, traditionally you had, you know, your family caused stress, work, financial pressures, all those things. And now we seem to live in an environment where everything is trying to cause us stress. It's trying to make us mad at somebody or something. It's trying to, you know, reinforce whatever bad thoughts I was already having if I felt about these people or that people, you know, everybody's got to be a winner or a loser, or, you know, it's got to be black or white. There's the nuance seems to be gone for most situation and it's stressful it's stressful in personal relationships good friends that uh, you don't agree with politically on on you know moral issues or on whatever you want to see it's like well, well then we can't be friends and whatever happened to you know reasonable people can disagree how do we how do we tune that out or how do we get past a lot of that yeah, and realizing that when we're in that psychological red zone, we tend to think in all or nothing, black or white thinking. It's either my way or it's the wrong way. It's my opinion and everyone else is wrong. That's very red zone thinking. So as more people are spending more time in the red zone, they start having that belief of if you don't agree with me, then I don't like you. One of the ways to address that is when we get out of the red zone and we can remember that you know, p different people have different opinions and that's what makes this world a, a beautiful place. And having being open to conversations, also remembering that when people have two different political views, if it's called chunking up in psychology, but if you really look at what they all want, they all want the same thing. So if someone is, um, I don't, I didn't want to get into to the topics, but if you really look at what, what's most important to you about that, if you chunk up, it's, it's, I care about people. I want people to be happy. I want people to be healthy. I want people to be prosperous, whatever it is. But it, most people, if you, if you look at the higher reasoning for their beliefs, they're similar. And so if we can come together on that, we want, for example, our our town to be healthy. We want the mental well-being of our young people and our adults to be healthy. Most people can agree with that. How we're going to go about that may be different, but we can we can come together on that higher level. And so keeping in mind that even though the details may be different, most people really most people do want what they think is best for themselves, for their family and for their community. Yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, how, how do we find a way to get along with people we don't necessarily agree with. And I guess part of it's finding it's where we do agree, you know, somewhere up that chain, you know, ultimately most people, you know, want to be happy and want other people to be happy and successful. So if we can get back up to that point, then the other ones maybe don't feel as big. Yeah, and, and respecting differences. I mean, when was the last time anyone got angry that someone liked I don't know, lobster instead of steak better. Who cares? That's just their preference. And so, <laughs> you know, for some reason, beliefs we've, we've transformed into something um, that we're giving more weight to. And so kind of taking a step back and respecting that other people have different opinions and different beliefs. And again, that's, that's what makes the world a better place. I mean, if we go back to food, if you, if you have a, a favorite meal and you ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 10 years straight, it's not going to be that great. You need some variety in your life. And so looking at that. 
Another thing that would be really helpful for people is to, and I'm, I, I'm going to preface this by saying, I know I'm on the news sometimes, but stop watching the news. Stop listening to the <laughs> news. Get off the news. There's been research out of Harvard that shows that watching the news for just three minutes in the morning, three minutes, increases your chance of being in a bad mood, what I would call being in the red zone, by 27%. Um, How um, many people, when they first um, wake up, they get on their phones, whether they get on a news station or social media or they check their email and they go right into that red zone? That primes your brain for the rest of the day. So if we were only going to do one thing, aside from keeping your phones outside your room, which I realize most people are going to do, but if we're <laughs> only going to do one thing, why don't we practice doing something positive for our mindset when we first wake up? When we go from awake to asleep and asleep to awake, our brain waves are actually in a hypnotic state. We're in that alpha level. That's where we put someone in hypnosis where they're suggestible. Our subconscious is always suggestible, but particularly when we go from awake to asleep and asleep to awake, that is a time we want to prime our brain. So first thing in the morning, if instead of looking at your phone and looking at your calendar or getting upset about what's happening in the world, if you just woke up and took a deep breath and thought, about one thing that you're grateful for. One thing, one person, one event, something that happened, something you're looking forward to, and you just sat in that emotion for 30 seconds. In fact, if you are so busy that you can't lay in bed for an extra 30 seconds, you can do this while you're brushing your teeth. That's the beauty of it. But what you're doing is you're priming your brain for something more positive. Ask yourself questions where you want the answer. Again, our subconscious is a sponge, right? Think about a sponge. You put a sponge in water, it absorbs the water. You wring it out and put it in milk, what does it do? It absorbs the milk, right? Not once does the sponge say, mm, I don't do dairy. It just absorbs it. <laughs> so we want to make sure that what we are giving our subconscious is, is something that it wants to absorb. Asking questions. So many times people will say, well, I ask questions in the morning, like how's my day going to suck today? Or what's my boss going to do today? That's going <laughs> to... The thing is, when you ask those questions, your subconscious will look for the answer. Ask yeah. questions you want the answer for. Today, how can I bring joy to someone? How can I show someone in my life just how important they are to me? Oh, those are questions that you may want to answer. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, first thing in the morning, all it does is get you fired up about something. You're yeah. not going to be very receptive to anything else, at least not not till the second cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's a, a great, great stuff. Um, we've talked a lot about your work on, on managing stress and finding people's per peak performance and, and delivering under pressure. But one of the other uh, areas that you do work in is, is, a, is a great one, right? You work on happiness. So simple question, right? What can we do to become happier people? Yeah, you know, so often people think, I'll be happier when, right? I'll be happier when yeah. I make that money, when I lose the weight, when my partner does this. And yet the research overwhelmingly shows us the relationship's opposite. When we are happier, we actually make more money. Not that more money makes us happier, but when we are happier, we make more money. When we are happier, we have more fulfilling relationships. When we're happier, we're actually healthier. Happier people live 8 to 10 years longer than miserable ones. So... What we want to realize is happiness is an internal project. I work with people who have more money than they can count, and they are not happy. But it's when we address what's going on inside of us. And Wait, money doesn't buy happiness? <laughs> no, people like to think it does. <laughs> if we spend it on others, that can bring us happiness. 
The research shows if we spend it on experiences, doing things, that can bring us happiness. But just having another million or two or a hundred million in the bank, nope, will not bring us more happiness. Which is good because that means we don't have to do external things. But when we address what's going on inside, and happiness is an emotion, it's caused by what we're saying to ourselves. It's caused by what we focus on. There's a lot of not so good out there. I don't have to tell anyone that, but there's a lot of not so good out there. But there's also a lot of good out there. And it's truly about what you're focusing on. And, and I'll just give a personal example, if I may, because I think sometimes people hear me and they're like, oh, she's got nothing going on in her life. Of course she's happy. My husband, the love of my life, nine years ago was diagnosed with ALS. Seven years ago, he was in the hospital for about 94, 95 days. He was intubated put on a ventilator and a feeding tube. For the past seven years, he has been getting worse. He's completely nonverbal now. He's completely paralyzed. He requires 24-7 care. The love of my life. Now, I share that because even though this is happening in our lives, we're still very happy. And we're not happy because he could literally die any day. We're happy because of what we focus on. We're happy because we focus on our time together. We're happy because we focus on what's important to us and being with family and being with friends and really enjoying even those little things in life. So I, again, I share that because I think it's important to realize that even though there's a lot of stuff going on out in the world and in our personal worlds and in the, the global world, what we focus on gets bigger. And if we focus on what's good, if we focus on what we're grateful for, if we focus on our relationships and being present with the people who we care about, if we focus on giving back. We know from the research that when we, when we serve other people, it actually brings us happiness too. We can do all of those things without having any money. We can do all of those things without having to change the world. And the beauty is when we change ourselves, when we ourselves become happier, not only do we feel better, but research shows that there are two degrees of separation. So if I'm happier, the people around me are happier. But wait, there's more because the people around them are happier. So if you want to make this world a better place, I would say the best place to start is within ourselves, is elevating our own positive energy, is focusing on what we can do as opposed to what we can't, focusing on what's right and how we can make more right in this world as opposed to being angry and resentful towards other people. That's going to not only change our personal lives, but it's going to change our community. Well, that, that's um, that's great stuff. I remember being told long ago, can't always choose what happens to you, but you can always choose how you react to that. Exactly. Um, but Dr. Lombardo, thanks uh, for talking to us today. I really appreciate the insights. It was it was fascinating. Good stuff. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, you can learn more about Dr. E at her website, elizabethlombardo.com. Lake Forest on Topic is a production of the Lake Forest for Transparency organization. To learn more or to leave some feedback, go to lf4t.com. That's lf4t.com. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Karras, Susan Saylor Daly, and John Turkle. Sound engineering is by John Turkle. I'm Tim Finnegan. Thanks for listening. Please go out and have a great day.